Miss Universe 2015 is Philippines. Miss Philippines, take your first walk as Miss Universe. Hello, I'm Liam Gammon and I'm the editor of New Mandala and this is a special series of podcasts that take a look at the Philippines beyond the cliches. I'm here with our Philippines editor, Nicole Corrado. Nicole, what did we just listen to? Well, that was such an important cultural event in the Philippines, Miss Universe. A lot of countries have football. The Philippines has beauty pageant. But aside from these you know, lighthearted comments, I think the concept of beauty in the Philippines is representative of bigger cultural debates in the country about identity, about authenticity. And so I've thought of inviting Eve Aquino. He is a physician and a bioethicist based at the philosophy department of Macquarie University. And he will walk us through the cliche that in the Philippines, if you want to be called beautiful, you have to look like Pia Wurzbach. And, and who is that? Pia Wurzbach is the Miss Universe in 2015, and I think... Oh, okay, so whom we just saw, well, listened to win. Exactly. Yeah. I just point out as well that probably the most famous Filipino of uh, modern times is none other than Imelda Marcos, who was a beauty queen, right? Right, she was actually in um, the island of Leyte. And so in a way, Pia Wurzbach is the contemporary articulation of what the Philippine standard of beauty is. Or is she? I think there's more to unpack there beyond the cliche of what a beautiful Filipina looks like. Great. So before we get too carried away reproducing these cliches, let's move to your great conversation with Eve. Joining us here at the headquarters of New Mandala at the ANU is Eve Aquino. So Eve is a physician and a bioethicist currently based at the philosophy department of Macquarie University in Sydney. His work examines the ethics of surgical modifications among Asian women. And somehow I managed to persuade him to swing by the capital to join us for a half hour conversation about beauty. So Eve, welcome to Canberra. Thank you, Nicole, for inviting me here. I'm so happy to be here. All right, so the stereotype we're unpacking today is this. In the Philippines, to be beautiful is to look like Pia Wurzbach. Now, for the uninitiated in the Philippine cultural landscape, Pia Wurzbach is the winner of Miss Universe in 2015 uh, for the Philippines. So she is 5 feet 7 inches tall, has a brown eyes, straight black hair. She has toned arms and a flat belly. She is young, has perfect skin, perfect teeth, and she's biracial. Her father is German and her mother is Filipina. And there's an impression that to be beautiful in the Philippines means to look like her. So Eve, does this make sense? That's a very topical question. But whether she represents the ideal Filipino beauty, I think it's yes and no, or at least not necessarily. Because we have, if we want to understand Filipino beauty, we have to sort of review our historical, uh, sort of our cultural history and geography. We are a post-multicolonial country with several invaders um, and probably we'll have another one in the next <laughs> few years. We also have migration of Chinese, Indians and Arabs in the past. It means we are a multi-ethnic group and we are an archipelago which creates physical, cultural and linguistic borders within our own country. So it means we have a broad range of what, of what it means to be beautiful. But is she beautiful based on Filipino standards? I think definitely yes. And in a way, being a mixed race means she has, as we say, the Goldilocks of ethnic features. She does not look too Chinese or too Malay or native. She does not look too white. So she is just right. 
Um, she's somewhere in the middle, at least in terms of skin tone and facial features. And I'm not sure if you remember, we have the Alamat of the Kayumangi or the legend of the brown-skinned. In that story, back in the day, we were, as kids, we were taught that when God was creating humans, the first batch was unsuccessful. It was uncooked. We call it in Tagalog, hilaw. Right. And that's the white people. Because it's pale. Yes. And then the second batch also did not work. It was overcooked or burnt. In Tagalog, we call it sunog. And that's the black people. And then the third batch became successful. It's what we call katamtaman or just right. So those are the brown-skinned people or the kayumangi. And in a way, it's sort of reflecting a color pride to go against the colonial mentality that white is beautiful. Or racial superiority, claims? In a way, it is racial superiority Because I remember well. the story in preschool. This yes. is what they ingrained remember? to younger kids saying that you have to be proud of your skin tone, forgetting that the range of Philippine skin tones vary. Yeah, exactly. And of course, we have, as I've said, because as an archipelago, we have different skin tones for different regions and, as well. So we have to take that into consideration. And third, she is beautiful in so far as beauty pageants are concerned. I think Filipinos are great in terms of categorizing beauty. So uh, you have beautiful for marriage, you have beautiful for employment, you have beautiful for TV and film acting, and you have beautiful for beauty pageants. Oh my God, and let's unpack that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she is beautiful because she's quite tall. She, she is meant for beauty pageants, and that's what she represents. And in the Philippines, I think people sort of venerate and revere that kind of beauty, not necessarily envying it. Not a lot of people who find her beautiful want to be her. A lot of people, gay men and women, look up to her as if she's a goddess. Right. Unreachable, but beautiful. I think that's interesting because um, in the previous podcast, we had Hannah Bullock on the program, um, and she's an anthropologist. And one of her, or part of her work, talks about a colonial mentality when it comes to the Filipino concept of identity. And one of her arguments is how American lifestyles and bodies serve as reference points for ideals of affluence and beauty. Does that still hold, uh, that the American standard of beauty, the colonial mentality we get from uh, colonial tradition has become um, the uh, standard for what beautiful looks like? That, that makes a lot of sense because it's a combination of race and class superiority. Um, if, uh, as you're familiar, when it comes to colonialism, a lot of times the colonizers reinforce existing hierarchies. So even before Spanish and American colonization, we already have social hierarchies. We have the um, Maharlika, the elites, and you have the working class payak, and then you have the alipins, the slaves. And a lot of times they are um, judged based on their skin color. And so when it comes to whiteness, it's not just about Western feature, it's also about elite feature. For the elite, they stay at home. They don't till the lands, they don't go fishing, they don't get dark skin tone. So in a way, it's a combination of both. Being white means being rich, and being white also means being Americanized. Right. But of course, I want to unpack the concept of biracial beauty. I remember in the Philippine pop culture scene, there has been a lot of debate about why can't the Philippines uh, claim space globally featuring the real Filipinos. And I'm doing air quotes here, the real Filipinos. And I remember um, when it comes to football, um, players like Phil and James Young, husband, who are also biracial, half British, half Filipino, are being criticized for not being real Filipinos. Or 
I think in the context of Australia, there's been an SBS feature about the most popular Australian you've never heard of, which is who's Anne Curtis, who has a million following on Instagram. So I guess there's this anxiety or tension within discussions in the Philippines of who a real Filipino looks like. So how does your work speak to that? It's um, entanglement of a lot of issues because especially when it comes to Filipino pride, it's quite selective. So for as long as something is positive, any amount of Filipino blood will be claimed by Filipinos. But we have to understand that Filipinos is also a heterogeneous population. Some would immediately sort of latch on to the Filipino-ness of some international celebrities, but others would claim that they're not authentic Filipinos. So there is a combination of that. But a lot of this issue is really based on appearances, isn't it? A lot of Filipino ce celebrities who are well-known worldwide, who are not considered as beautiful, a lot of them are popular because of their talents. So you have Manny Pacquiao, you have Leia Salongo, who I find very beautiful, but she's far known more as a singer than obviously as a beauty contestant. Right. She was never a beauty contestant. But in other cases like Anne Curtis, for example, or the Azkal boys, it's because of their appearance that they're being criticized. They're beautiful, but they're not necessarily pure Filipino. So th there's a tension. Yes, we want them to sort of claim they're being a Filipino, but at the same time, we hold ourselves back because they don't look th like the rest of us. And how does this speak to the broader context of Southeast and East Asia? You've examined um, notions of beauty in these contexts yeah. as well. So there's a shared sort of preference for whiteness that Filipinos um, sort of share with East Asia and Southeast Asia. And that's still quite dominant. So as I've said, it's a combination of class issue and sort of Western feature issue. And Philippines is part of that sort of sphere. And does the colonial tradition have anything to do with it? Or has it been evolving a lot when it comes to the more mainstream Hollywood cultures? It's a combination of both. This interesting thing about Filipinos, or at least the Philippines, in comparison to, say, South Korea, which was never colonized, it's hard to distinguish them at this point because, as you've said, the importation of Hollywood ideals of beauty is so dominating that we don't know if it's a factor of us just being part of the modern globalized industry or is it because of our history of being colonized. So I think it's a combination yeah, of both. Yes, rather iterative. Yes. And of course, um, there's a political economy argument to be made here. And I'm sure you notice this, that every time we go home to Manila, we see a lot of billboards that advertise laser liposuction for the arms, thermage treatment to yeah. chisel the jaw, skin whitening, and even a vaginal reconstruction. Um, an advertisement is right there, a billboard is right there in one of the biggest highways in the Philippines. So how big is the beauty and cosmetic industry in the Philippines? I don't have the exact numbers, but based on conversations with my colleagues in plastic surgery, it's definitely growing. But we also have to thank, I guess, Dr. Vicky Bello for allowing cosmetic surgery and cosmetic procedures to not only enter the mainstream, but to be visible. Because back in the day, there is a lot of stigma when it comes to plastic surgery. People don't want to admit it. People don't want any obvious visible markers of surgery. But now I think people are more open to discussing it. Um, a lot of, I think a few celebrities have 
you know, come out and admitting that they've had surgeries done on their faces or other body parts. Right, of course, um, you are a physician yourself and you're very much embedded in the medical community in the Philippines. And what you're telling me is this, the rise of celebrity doctors like Vicky Bella really mainstreamed cosmetic surgery in the Philippines. So it is really kind of a turning point yes. when it comes to this industry. Would you call it an industry? It is an industry, but it's also... Um, it is also its own monster because any cosmetic service provider that advertises, they're not usually part of the medical community or the medical specialty that they're claiming to be. So Dr. Vicky Bello is not part of the Philippine Dermatological Society or Philippine Plastic Surgery Society because any member of those societies are not allowed to advertise. But as long as you are a doctor and you want to claim to be a cosmetic surgeon, no one's stopping you. So we have to make a distinction and I don't want to sort of betray my medical profession for that. Of course, and I think this is where your bioethics voice is very important. Um, I read your piece published in the Theoretical Medicine and Bioethics Journal where you argued that surgical modifications, particularly big eye <laughs> surgery among Asian women, is pitched as a remedy to pathologize Asian features. So if I may pull a quote from your article, you argued that the combination of medical jargon and aesthetic references employed by cosmetic surgeons have the tendency to conflate beauty and health. So what does that mean? Um, in my research, I make two sort of distinction when it comes to forms of conflation. The first one is conflation based on the concepts. So it's a conceptual conflation when we use medical language to describe beauty concerns. In my master's um, of research thesis, I did a text analysis of cosmetic surgery websites in Australia and South Korea. And what I found was the use of disabling language like deficiency, deformity, lack, excess. Um, all those words that you actually find in describing pathological conditions in a lot of medical textbooks. So that's one, at least on the conceptual level. Usually in terms of Asian cosmetic surgery or Asian eyes, a lot of surgeons in websites describe Asian, Asian eyes as lacking of folds or suboptimal or aesthetically deviant. So it sounds scientific, objective, or, and to some extent medical as well. The other type of conflation is more practical. So that's when you offer diagnostic evaluation that you usually use for medical conditions. It's like using x-ray, using computers and algorithms to measure you know, different proportions of the face. And the second part of that practical conflation is offering medical intervention as if they are corrective, quote-unquote, or restorative. So in a way that contributes to the idea that that, that ugliness or sort of racial features are like deformities associated with injuries, disorders, or other kinds of diseases. In terms of the second question, I think in the Philippines, we are still not as explicit. It's not similar to the medical framing that you find in the U.S., Australia, or even South Korea, where surgeries are extremely popular. I think our notion of beauty and ugliness in the Philippines are still more entangled with other social factors such as class and socioeconomic status, um, urban versus rural origins, and being a mixed race. So if you look at skin whitening as an example, which is really popular in the Philippines, the way it's marketed is not really about looking healthy. Um, a couple of years ago, Glutamax, it's a very popular skin whitening product, had this marketing slogan that says, Kutis Mayaman, or the skin of the wealthy or the rich. Um, it featured the photo of Gretchen Barreto, a popular uh, Filipina actress. 
And there were posters of that, um, a lot of those posters in the Philippines. I think in the Philippines, being a developing country, health still does not have a strong currency when it comes to beauty as much as it does in developed countries. So as of the moment, marketing cosmetic procedures does not have to rely on it. The value of physical appearance based on relational and socioeconomic benefits, I think that's enough to sell these services. But is there pushback as well? Because I think in the same way that Hollywood is trying to pluralize its concept of beauty, we've seen Vogue and Vanity Fair covers that yeah. feature different kinds of um, women from different kinds of background. Do we see a similar pushback um, in the Philippines? I think so, especially when I'm not sure if you've heard of the scandal of a new telenovela in the Philippines, right. Bagani. Right. Yeah. Bagani. So that one, they tried to put on darker skin tone on the actors, and a lot of Filipinos pushed back against that, saying that it just shows how a lot of our actors are still fair-skinned to the point that none of the actors that we have as, as of the moment can authentically portray a dark-skinned indigenous population. So I think a lot of people are growing and stating that we should have more democratized notions of what is beautiful. And of course, we couldn't possibly talk about notions of beauty without putting a gendered aspect here. And so far, I'm assuming that um, people who are prone to these stereotypes and pressures to look a certain way are, are women. And do you see similar patterns when it comes to men? Are there emerging cultural patterns um, that pressure men to look a certain way or conform to a particular standard of beauty as well? I think there is. Based on the recent survey by the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, there is a growing number of male patients undergoing cosmetic surgery. But make no mistake, it's still 85% of consumers of cosmetic surgery, they are still women. So let's not uh, make the claim that it's being democratized because it still disproportionately affects or involves women. But there is a growing number of procedures for men like hair replacement for baldness, penis enlargement, and also surgeries for gynecomastia. But what's interesting, and, some, uh, and a lot of feminists working in bioethics and cosmetic surgery, they find that a lot of male procedures are more accepted as medical procedures. They feel that appearance concerns of men are much more organic than women, which is fairly interesting. And it's quite consistent with how, with the uneasy relationship of medicine and the, and the female body. Can you unpack that a bit? Why is there so, an uneasy relationship? When it comes to hair loss, I think society was so quick to accept that hair loss is not, an it's not merely an aesthetic concern, that it has to do with testosterone, it has to do with biochemical factors. So it, it sounds much more organic, as opposed to female concerns about their nose or their breasts or their vagina. It sounds like society still deems that as purely about vanity. So when I say medicine's an easy relationship with the female body, there's a long-standing history in medicine where it's the male body that's, that is deemed as the normal body, and the female body is a sort of deviance. The female body is a failed body of a man. So when you talk about vagina, it's, it's an organ that failed to develop as a penis. So there's that sort of problematic history when it comes to medical view of, uh, of, of medicine's view of the female body, which is interesting, it's being reflected in cosmetic surgery. 
Right, of course. And I think we also discussed earlier, or we touched on briefly earlier about um, the competing notions of beauty in the region, and you also looked at East Asia when it comes to this. I'm particularly curious about the concept of the eye. Yeah. Why of all features of the body is the eye considered most problematic or contentious, um, especially in East Asia? Firstly, I think the general notion that the eyes are the windows of the soul still holds true. Is that um, a medical yeah. <laughs> claim? <laughs> um, I, I think it's influential because when people talk to each other, eye, eye contact is really important. But more importantly, it's the eyes that is still, you know, they are still the main subject of ridicule. So a lot of Asians living in Western, Western countries they are called names such as chinky eyes or slanty eyes. And people who are mocking them pull their eyes to the side to, to sort of mimic that Asian feature. So in a way, because it's a point of ridicule, it's much easier for cosmetic surgeons to justify that, see, there is an emotional suffering and emotional pain associated with this Asian feature. We have to do something about it. Let us offer surgical procedure to sort of um, relieve the suffering. Whether or not that's true, it's still obviously up for debate. Because of course when we talk about, I mean I read this in American Asian studies on how the stereotype on the other hand for East Asians would be they are the successful good migrants who do well um, in school. So in a way there's one stereotype of the good student who has oriental features versus the beautiful student who are, that, that are very different things. Either you're smart or you're or you're beautiful. So does that stereotype still uh, hold true today, especially for um, diasporic communities in Western contexts? It's, I think it's different when it comes to the experiences of Asian women and Asian men. So when it comes to Asian women, a lot of times they oscillate between being exoticized and being deemed unattractive. And so being exoticized in the sense that um, they're, they're seen as beautiful in a very specific ethnic context. But when it comes to the stereotype of being successful, I think in a way that works for them, uh, especially when it comes to corporate jobs, where appearance can only be advantages to some extent. You can't be too beautiful. You know, you can't be too, you can't be distractingly beautiful. So because they can be viewed as unattractive to some extent, that works to their advantage. I think it's, it might be worse for men in some sense because Asian men are historically viewed as emasculated or asexual. Um, so they're not masculine because of their fine features. And a lot of times, even the eyes, it's associated with being passive, with being at some point intellectually inferior because people say having a flat face looks like someone who is not emotional. It does not register the kind of, you know, joy that you mm. see in a lot of Western Which faces. Which sorts of literature reinforce so, that? So aside uh, from fashion magazines, of course. Uh, it, it has been studied in, um, epidemi uh, sorry, in, in sociological research in the U.S. and Australia. There's this publication by Eugenia Kao in the U.S. I think that was published in 1996 that looked into how cosmetic surgeons in the U.S. justify surgical procedures for Asians. And that's one of the claim. It's that the Asian face appears to have this sort of association with behavioral and intellectual deviance. Right. 
Yes. And of course, we started the podcast by talking about Pia Wirtz back. So I would be remiss not to raise the issue of beauty pageants yes. and how the Philippines has always seen beauty pageants as a point of pride. Yeah. And in a way, this is where the argument that the Philippines is more comparable to its Latin American neighbors rather than its Southeast Asian neighbors, because we are neighbors to Latin America culturally, albeit not geographically, and perhaps the colonial tradition has something to do with it. So what are your thoughts? Why is a beauty pageant such a big deal in the Philippines? And why was it such a big deal that Thailand suddenly is breaking in this scene as well? I think in the Philippines, we have a very uneasy relationship with the physical appearance. I think we have to take into consideration that we are predominantly Catholic. So bodily exposure has to be taken in a very specific context. And beauty pageantry allows for a legitimate and sort of official venue for us to celebrate the body. And you have the gown competition, you have the bathing suit competition, and you also have the question and answer. So in a way, it's, it's a venue that allows it to celebrate beauty and physical attractiveness without the shame that we usually attach to it. So that's why it's a big thing for us. But with the Thailand issue, I don't think I have any specific opinion on that. <laughs> but it's just unusual because... But it's also surprising why... I think it's highly overdue because in terms of cosmetic surgery, Thailand's still like one of the capitals in, in Southeast Asia. For medical tourism. Yeah, for medical right. tourism. So I, I think it's long overdue that they're breaking into the international beauty pageantry. And from the philosophy of ethics perspective, how can we judge beauty pageants? Because of course, there's this standard feminist argument on how this reduces women to a meat market of bodies that are being judged. But of course, there's this counter narrative like what you mentioned. It's a celebration of female body and sexuality and we should just stop being prudes about it. So what are your thoughts on this from the ethics perspective? From the ethics perspective, I think in the Philippines, um, it's not as apparent, but if you look at Latin America, including Brazil, Venezuela, and Colombia, because of beauty pageantry, it increases the popularity, of, not even popularity, but the need for cosmetic surgery. Because for a lot of Latin American countries, which are still developing countries, a lot of times beauty pageantry is the way out. It's the way for economic success. So for these countries, more and more, beauty is being associated with health. Um, it's being associated with well-being. I think we are still far from this, but in Latin American countries, they are viewing beauty pageant contestants as not only the ideal, but the norm of beauty. So even if you don't want to enter contestants, it sometimes feels like you have to conform to these standards, and it increases the burden for a lot of individuals to align with these standards, which obviously increases the, the, the need for cosmetic surgery. So more and more, I think we are collapsing the distinction between what is necessary surgery and what is aesthetic surgery or surgery for the purposes of vanity. And part of it is also normalizing surgery, cosmetic surgery for everyday Filipinos. Um, are there other stereotypes you wish to critically examine? I think I want to go back to that bit where we talked about us being predominantly Catholic. Uh, a lot of times when people discuss beauty, it's usually about race or about gender, but I think we have to take in co into consideration us being predominantly Catholic and the notion that I think a lot of Filipinos still hold the, or still suffer from the Madonna whore complex. Can you explain that? Um, so Madonna whore complex is it's this notion that there's a specific kind of attractiveness that is appropriate for 
for marriage and there's one that's appropriate for sexuality. So there's the, the sexual beauty versus the virginal beauty. And that's why I think a lot of Filipinos can categorize what kind of beauty they want to marry and what kind of beauty they just want to view from afar or they want to view from TV. And I think because of how, you know, we, we, because of the shame that we sort of inherited from our Catholic tradition. And the other one, I think we have to be careful in terms of over-determining or, or over-emphasizing the value of beauty. As you see in the Philippines, beauty is not always advantages. If you want to be successful in a particular field, you can be beautiful to a certain extent. Extreme or ideal beauty works when it comes to beauty pageants or being a film or TV celebrity, but it does not always work when it comes to quote-unquote serious professions like law and medicine. A lot of times you are seen with cynicism if you are too pretty. That's why you have a lot of cases where a photo goes viral if a person is working in some other fields apart from you know, TV and film or modeling and that person is beautiful, they're like, you know, it becomes viral because people don't expect you as a beautiful person not to work in, you know, the film and TV industry. So I think we, we, we have to understand that in that context, we do categorize beauty as well. And I think what I'm getting from you here is that you're, you're challenging in a way this notion that the concept of beauty is just imposed on people and people uncritically accept that standard of beauty. It's very Frankfurt School in a way that we are conditioned to all want to look like Pia Wurzbach or whichever kind of celebrity there is. What I'm getting from you is there are different contexts, have different demands on particular sorts of appearances that legitimize your status in a particular community. That's right. I think you have to give credit to Filipinos as well as thinking beings that they do manage to idolize certain beauties without necessarily being bogged down by it. A lot of Filipinos still have to live the day-to-day -day life. They have to work, they have to deal with the traffic, they have to deal with relationships, and they're not always preoccupied with thinking with beauty. And I guess the same is true when we talk about expectations with women. As you mentioned earlier, there is expectation of the decent woman, the kind of woman that can marry into a decent family. So those traditional structures are very much present. But on the other hand, there is also a space to something more experimental, like in the arts and culture, where women can express sexualities in different ways. Are we headed towards that direction? Especially, I'm sorry I have to bring it up, especially in a context of a sexist president. Where does this leave the politics of appearances in what seems to be an openly misogynistic society? Um, the, the thing about misogynism in the Philippines, discounting our current president, it's a bit tricky. It's hidden in a lot of ways. It's not as apparent as it is in Western countries because female opportunities is quite present when it comes to um, education, when it comes to employment, even when it comes to politics. We have a lot of female politicians. So the misogyny is, is not as direct. So in a way, women are allowed to be beautiful, are allowed to be sexual to some extent. But I think it's changing because, obviously, because of internet. And a lot of people are traveling outside the country more and more, bringing with them you know, the cultural and the aesthetic ideals that they sort of encounter in different countries. And I think with the importation of films, not only from the West, but also from, from Asia, we have a lot of Korean telenovelas. Now we have Chinese um, media coming in as well. So I think it's expanding 
our, our notion of beautiful, our notion of ways to express what it means to be beautiful in the Philippines. So I think we are in a constant flux. Right, and I think that's worth celebrating yes. to a certain extent. Yes. Well, we've come to the end of the program. Um, I guess in summary, Eve, can you help us make sense of this statement? In the Philippines, to be beautiful is to look like Pia Wurzbach. To, that, to what extent does that statement make sense? I think it means that for Filipinos, our beauty ideal is both outwards and outward looking. That is, we focus on the superficial and we constantly seek external, even international validation. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Eve. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in the first season of our podcast. Till next time. That was New Mandala's Philippines editor, Nicole Corrado, speaking with Eve Aquino from the Department of Philosophy and the Research Center for Agency, Values and Ethics at Macquarie University. If you're listening to this at SoundCloud or at the New Mandala website, remember that you can also subscribe to all of New Mandala's audio releases at iTunes or through the Apple Podcast app. Just do a search for New Mandala. Thanks for listening.